Well, this morning we are making a little bit of a turn because for the last number of weeks we've been looking at how truly good it was when God first made the world and first made us in his image. This morning we are finally turning to look at our fall into sin. And that means that this morning, while we will still seek to see how good it was, we will do so through looking at more what we've lost and why we lost it. What I hope to show you this morning is that our descent into sin was not merely us just disobeying God, okay? It was not just a decision to like not follow his rules or something like that, but rather that our descent into sin, while it was disobedience, was actually a decision to disobey God because we had decided to actually choose our own way. That it was a decision to step outside of God's love care, grace, and provision because we felt as if he had held back on us. Our sin is not merely disobedience, but an act of distrust. Really what I want to show you is that we sinned because we refused to rely on God and his loving care. And really as we dive into this, I hope to show you that this act of idolatry, which is really what it is, where we refused to trust God and instead trusted in other things for what God offered to give us. We trusted in ourselves, our desires, our wants, and thus we rivaled God with our own wisdom, that that has plunged our world into ruin. Because life outside of God, as much as it may look like it's the good life, may look like it will actually fulfill us, is life truly in the realm of death. But my hope in looking at this is not just to show you that that is what happened back then, but to show you how we, li- we continue to live according to these patterns today. That we continue today to actually fall in line completely with the serpent, with Adam and Eve, where we distrust God. We continue in our sinful ways by looking for love and care and provision outside of him. But that no matter how hard we look, we can't find it. We aren't finding covering sufficient, and we can't actually offload the blame on someone else. Those things can only be found in him. And that's what I want to uh, to talk to you about today. But I also, as we do this, I want to try to conclude by showing us that as dark as this has made our world, as dark as the descent into sin has made our lives in so many ways, that there is still hope. Not because we have actually been able to find a way, but because despite the fact that we stepped outside of God's offer of life, God chose to step into our way of death so that he could bear the weight of sin on himself and once again offer us life, love, care, and provision. Okay, that's what I want to show you. But let me pray first, and then we can really dive into the text. So please, please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love and care for us. We thank you for your word. And I ask, God, that right now, you and your mercy and your grace would use me by the power of your spirit, Father, to proclaim who you are, to show, yes, Lord, what we have done in walking this world into sin and darkness and despair and death, but to also show what you have done in entering into that for us so that we could actually have hope in the midst of our darkness. Father, may we know you more through this service, and so may you speak. 
Let us not be about me, about North Park, but about your son. May your spirit graciously speak so that me, we might stand in awe of who you are. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's begin by looking at Genesis 2.25, right? So it says this, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, it might be a little bit surprising that I included this verse with our text today, but really, this verse is a hinge verse. What I mean is that this verse both concludes and transitions us from the wonderful things that we've been seeing in Genesis 1 through 2 into the painful story of our fall into sin that takes place in the rest of our text and which really starts to describe the world as we know it today. But before we get into chapter 3, I think it's important for us to see what Genesis 2.25 is really saying and how it concludes and transitions us. And this is because this verse is essentially the crowning statement on how good things truly were before sin came into the world. This is okay. The two people that this, person is ta- that this verse is talking about are obviously Adam and his wife. She will eventually be named Eve, but that actually has not happened yet. And they are, as we've been looking at, the first humans. And what that means is that they are God's image bearers, whom he has created and put into the Garden of Eden so that they may rule, subdue, and multiply in the world and expand God's goodness all over the world. Essentially, what they were created to do was to Edenize all of creation. So that was their commission, their first great commission. It was our original call, original vocation given to us as humans. We were created in God's image for the sake of imitating him by ruling, subduing, and multiplying throughout the world. But we could only do so. Adam and Eve could only do so in reliance on God, by trusting in God and rightly relating to him, okay? So they were to rule, subdue, and multiply in reliance on him. And really what that would mean is actually by imitating him, which really should make a lot of sense since they are his image bearers. And just as an image in a mirror only maintains its form when someone continues to stand in front of it, so also humans. We can only truly fulfill our call when we continue to rightly relate to God. And this is what the two trees that were placed in the middle of the garden were all about. Okay, so we didn't read about these two trees again, but I'm gonna talk about them before we dive really into chapter three because they are really important for understanding what happens here. So Genesis 2.9 explains that God placed two trees in the middle of the garden. There was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But while they were permitted to eat from the tree of life, God commanded them not to eat from the other tree. So they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, but why? Well, we talked about this last week, but ultimately the reason is because God loves them. And he was teaching them to rely on him. For his way is the way of life. You see, what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents is wisdom, okay? Every time that phrase, knowledge of good and evil, comes up in the scriptures, it refers to wisdom, the ability to know what's right and what's wrong. And from eating from that tree, the idea was that the man and the woman would be choosing their own wisdom, choosing to live according to their own definitions of what's right and wrong, choosing their own way of life, choosing then to rival God by saying, we know what is good, our way is good, but yours is 
But of course, they would be wrong. To live outside of God, as good as it looks, is to actually walk away from the tree of life. It is the way of death. And so in love, God gave them access to his tree and warned them that if they chose their own wisdom, if they sinned against him and chose their own way, if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die, for they would be walking outside of him. And since he is life, they would be walking into the way then of death. But as we begin our text this morning, that has not yet happened. Instead, when we look at Genesis 2.25, what we see is that Adam and Eve are both naked and not ashamed. And what that means is that they are fully relying on God. And because of that, they are good. They are taken care of. They have all that they need. Because, okay, while this verse is speaking about our physical state What it's not talking about is just kind of what they look like and how they felt. I know it sounds like that because it's nakedness and shame, but really we need to understand what those words are referring to. Now let's let's start, start with shame. Shame, we need to make sure we don't assume we know what that means. In fact, even though the translations put it often, like the NIV does here where it says they felt no shame, the reality is the word felt is not actually in the Hebrew. We naturally put it there, and a lot of translators do, because we just associate the word shame with feelings. But the Hebrew word that we translate as shame is not a synonym with something like being embarrassed, like it tends to be in English. No, the word is specifically about someone's state of being, rather than actually being embarrassed. It can cause embarrassment, but it's actually about your state of being. And I know this sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but this is important because what it means then is that when we look at 2.25, what it is not saying is that Adam and his wife were both naked, but despite their nakedness, were not embarrassed. But rather, that despite their nakedness, despite the fact that they had nothing to cover them, that they had no shelter, that they have no material things that we would think one would need in order to actually be taken care of, despite the fact that they were completely exposed, they were not in danger. They were good, they were fine, they were not in need, they were not shamed because they had God. You see, this is not saying that they felt fine even though they were naked. This is saying that despite how it looks, they were fine because they were relying on God. Even though it may have looked to us as if they were in a bad state, they were not, they were not shamed. You see, that is the glorious picture we have of the world when all is right. It is how good things really were. It is a picture of God taking care of us. It is a picture of actually us still very vulnerable, us still very needy, and yet being okay because we have God, because he is taking care of us, because we just sang about he is giving us all that we need. Thus, while they were needy, they were good, for they had him. But you see, that then is what we moved to lose in chapter 3. Because okay, look with me now at 3.1. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, okay, I realize that there are many questions that this verse alone brings up, such as, Why is a serpent talking? That is a little bit confusing. 
And why in the middle of God's good garden do we have a serpent that is trying to deceive humanity? But there's a lot of different answers we can give to that. So one is that in the ancient world, serpents basically did represent agents of chaos and disorder. Okay, so they represent that which opposes God. And the New Testament also explains that the serpent is actually Satan himself, an enemy of God who has crept into the garden. But I also want us to notice here that the text of Genesis itself has prepared us for something like this, if we've really been paying attention to things with Genesis 1 and 2. Because as we've been saying for the last number of weeks, Genesis does not present to us a creation that is so good or so perfect that it could not be improved. It could. And God had delegated that responsibility to us, to humanity. We were to rule and subdue all of the earth. And part of that, it explains, was to rule and subdue all of the beasts of the earth. So when we see a serpent that's acting a bit out of line, we should not only not be surprised, but we should expect humans to step in and do something about it, to actually subdue this animal. But then, while we shouldn't be surprised, we should be really alarmed when he seems to actually win, when he seems to actually rule over them. And that's what starts to happen here. And it begins by him questioning God's word. So the serpent says, has God really said? Did he really say? And I want us to see that question also in the context of Genesis 1 through 2. Because that is a really sinister thing to actually say. Because if we looked at, we first began this series, God created the world by speaking. It was his word. It was things that he said that brought all of reality into being. Because of that, God's word is that which defines reality. For it was by his word that reality was made, unless it is by his word that reality is described and understood. But also God's word is an expression of himself. It is a manifestation of his very being, which is why Jesus Christ is called the word of God. And why we would say that God's word, the Bible, points us ultimately not to itself, but to God, to Jesus, to who God really is. But the serpent here, Satan himself, wants us to question this wants us to be suspicious of God's words, and thus, to actually be suspicious of God himself, to not trust him. And so, when he seeks to do this, he doesn't begin his temptation by saying, why did God say, or when did God say, or how did God say? But did he really? Is that honestly what he has said? And then notice, even when he quotes God here, the quote is wrong. He makes God sound really cruel. Has God really said, you mustn't eat from any the trees in the garden? The answer to that is no. That is not what he said. But now notice how the woman responds, starting in verse 2. So it says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And all right, this is so interesting because that is also not true. It's almost true. But whereas the serpent has sought to undermine God's word by questioning it and altering it, the woman's words here actually subtract from it. She never talks about the tree of life there. And it also adds to it. Because God did not say you could not touch the tree, only that you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because again, as we went over, to do so would be to step outside of God and thus to walk into death 
To eat from the tree would be to choose your own wisdom, your own path, really your own word. Okay, what I want us to notice here is that that has already begun. Even before the fruit is actually eaten, the rebellion has already begun. This is an extremely realistic picture of what sin is like. Very few of us ever just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'm just going to completely reject God today. It is a slow descent. And here we see the rebellion has already begun. It's not just that we ate some fruit and thus disobeyed a command. Even before the fruit is eaten from the tree, before we see the full act that crashes our world into sin, darkness, and death, before that takes place, we already see that it has begun. Humanity is slipping away here because it is not trusting God. Because God's word, God's wisdom is being questioned and it's being added to. It's being undermined and it's being seen as insufficient, as not going far enough. And I want us to pause here for a moment because if we think through the struggles of God's people throughout their history, Basically, if we think through the true story of the world as given to us in the scriptures, what we see is that time and again, this is exactly what we keep doing. This is the story of the whole Bible. Think of Israel. Israel consistently struggled with undermining God's word in the Old Testament. They were always asking, really? Do we really need to be distinct? Do we really need to follow these rules? Can't we just be like the nations around us? Did God say that we should actually welcome the downtrodden and the sojourner? Did he say that we actually needed to rest? Yes, has God actually said? They tended to either do that or they went the other way where they added things to what God said and took other things away. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They took God's commands, got rid of some of them and added others in. It's for the Pharisees, it was not just they wanted to obey certain laws, they added to those laws. They literally built walls of commands around God's laws so that you could not get close to disobeying God. But to add to God's word, while it might look like the wise thing to do, is another form of not trusting God. Because you think you know better. Oh, we need to add to this because God actually hasn't gone far enough. I'll put something else around it and I'll call it me being wise. I'm doing the wise thing here, but in reality, I'm not trusting that God's word is enough. It needs more. You see, that's the thing. Because I think this still continues to this day. Not just in the Pharisee way, but the way of undermining God's word as well. We tend towards these ways. Today, many of us question if God really did say. And we maybe don't say it out loud, but our lives show that we are questioning God's wisdom. Did he really say that we need to live this way? Did God really say that if we're his followers, we cannot live for money? That we can't be greedy? Did he really say that we couldn't be sexually immoral, that we couldn't be drunkards? Did he really say that I need to forgive those who deeply hurt me? Did he actually say that? Did God really say that we need to take up our cross and follow him? Did he really say that we need to to deny ourselves? The answer to all those things is yes, he really did. But okay, the way that many of us say yes to those things is like Pharisees. Yes, God said all those things, but then we say, or we live as if he said, don't be sexually immoral, and therefore, don't even associate with those that you think who are. And don't ever be friends with someone from the opposite sex. Don't be greedy, and therefore, all comforts are evil. And anyone you see as greedy should be looked down upon. 
Forgive others, and therefore, even when your spouse is abusive, you have to stay with them. You should take up your cross and follow Jesus, and therefore, if you are living a life that looks normal to many people, you are wasting it. But that is not what God's word says either. That's not God's wisdom. And to say those things, or to live like that is true, is to act like the serpent and Adam and Eve here in the garden. It is to step outside of God's wisdom, to step outside of his way of life. You see, the lie that I think we often believe, and I'm putting myself there as well, is that that isn't true. The lie is actually that questioning God's ways or adding to God's word is a wise decision, that it is the way of life. I mean, today, I think, depending on who you are, we often tend to see one of those marks, or actually going one of those ways, as a mark of maturity. So that for some of us, when we see someone who is questioning God's word, by which I don't mean someone who is willing to wrestle with the text in order to really make sure we're grasping it and see what points to God. I'm not talking about someone who deeply cares about what God said. I'm talking about when we see someone who's willing to undermine it. We see someone who's willing to be like, I don't know if, it really, if God actually really said that. Did God really say? A lot of us feel that when someone does that, they're being brave. Well, for others, when we see someone who's willing to go way above and beyond God's word, to add things on to what God has said, we see them as a disciplined, godly person, as living a wise life. But you see, guys, what I want us to see here is that both of these ways are very dangerous. Both are actually leading towards the way of death, that both these things, undermining it and adding to it, they began in the garden when we walked into sin. And thus both take us down the path of death, even though they may look like life to us. Because that's the lie. It's why the serpent's response to the woman is, you will not certainly die. Because the lie Satan has wanted us to believe from the beginning is that if you step outside of God, you will not die. But rather, as the serpent says in verse 5, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, we really need to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to be like God in knowing good and evil? That's an important question to ask because later in chapter 3, verse 22, we didn't read this, but in chapter 3, verse 22, God actually says, after we've walked into sin, that the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Okay, so that whatever the serpent means here by this, he's actually somewhat telling the truth. But even saying that, that is a little bit confusing because we're made in his image. We're made according to his likeness. So how can those who were created like God become more like God? What is actually Satan talking about here? Well, I think the key to understanding this is to be found in that both the serpent and God say that the way that we have become like God here is in knowing good and evil. Because what that means is not merely that we're now aware of the categories of good and evil, but that rather in sinning against God, in choosing to eat the fruit of which God said not to eat, we have come to define those categories for ourselves, to step outside of God's word, wisdom, and life. And now we know good and evil because we're saying we know what they are. We get to define them. And this becomes clear when we look at verses 6 through 7, but I want us to start here with verse 6 and really pay attention to the exact words that are used here. So it says this, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye 
and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay, why did they eat? Why did they do it? Well, they did it because it was desirable to make one wise, because they wanted to, so that they could have wisdom. They did it because it was a delight to the eyes, because it looked beautiful, and they did it. And I think this is the most important one, because they saw that it was good for food. Yes, they saw that it was good. That is why the woman took and ate. And think about that. Because where else have we seen that phrase? And it is identical in the Hebrew. Saw that it was good. Where else have we seen that? All throughout Genesis 1. As God time and again created, ordered, and beautified the world for us and saw that it was good. Which if you remember back to when we looked at that, we talked about how important that wording was. That it's not that God said that it was good or thought that it was good, but rather that he saw. Because what that means is God was actually evaluating it. He was considering it and weighing his creation. And in his wisdom, he saw, he evaluated that, yes, this is good. This is good for life. This is good for my creation. This is good for me to be with you. But now, now in the garden, in the place where God placed the woman and the man and called on them to rule, subdue, and multiply in reliance on him, according to his ways, to depend on him for life and wisdom, and thus said it would not be good for them to choose their own way of life, choose their own wisdom. We have come to see things differently. We have come to evaluate things differently. They came to see that it would be good, it would be good to step outside of God's ways. And thus, in taking the fruit, they are not just disobeying, they are rivaling God in their evaluations of what's good and what's not. And so they've taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, that is what I think it means to know good and evil, to be like God in knowing good and evil. It's not to know the categories. It's to start to decide for yourself what those categories are. It is to see for yourself what is good, to take what brings delight to your eyes, to take what you find desirable. It is then to rival God. It's idolatry for it is to make ourselves like him. And that was the promise of the serpent. You don't need God. You don't need to follow his ways. You don't need him. You can be like him. And in a sense, he was right. That's what happened, as even God admitted. We have become like gods. And today, that continues to be true. In fact, that is the way we are told to live our lives. Do what makes you feel happy. Embrace what you desire. There's all these different cliches. You do you. Whatever floats your boat, live your truth. But guys, as right as the serpent was, he was also wrong. He was a liar. Because though they became like God in rivaling him, they had stepped outside of him. And thus they had entered into the realm of death. And this is why in verse 7, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, what that is saying is that as soon as they ate from the tree, 
they realized how exposed and vulnerable they actually were. They were not aware that God was taking care of them, that God had them, that God was the one who actually was providing all of their needs. They did not know that they were naked, that they were covered. But in actually stepping outside of his ways, they came to see what they actually were, that they were absolutely in need. They were naked now and shamed because they did not have God, for they had walked outside of him. Now they were exposed, for they had chosen their own way. Now they no longer had God wisely guiding them in the way of the tree of life. Instead, they had entered into what theologians often call God-forsakenness, for they had chosen their own way and thus had entered into death. And all they could do was desperately try to find some kind of covering, something to hide their exposed, shamed, ruined condition. In fact, the weight of what they had done was so heavy that they, in fear, hide from God. They can't even face him. Even though God is crying out, where are you? Where have you gone? And then when he finds them, because he keeps searching, they can't even admit what they have done. Instead, they blame others. So Adam blames both the woman and God. So he says, the woman that you gave to me, actually, she gave me the fruit, and the woman blames the serpent. But why? Because of the horror of what they have done, the reality of actually being exposed, the guilt that then weighed down upon them had come to be realized by them. The weight of living outside of God, the weight of actually having to provide for yourself, to find coverings for yourself, had come crashing down upon them, and it was too heavy. Living in the realm of death, in God-forsakenness, is so heavy that all they can do is desperately try to hide, cover up, and blame someone else for what they have done. You see, guys, that is what this text is showing us, is the reality of living outside of God. It is the way that we have actually made our world today. Because we have chosen our own paths, we have now embraced that which is not God. Or perhaps said better, we've embraced parodies of what God offers to us. And so we've actually embraced idolatry. We now live as if we're trying to find what only God can give to us. So if God is love and life and abundance and freedom and peace and security and fulfillment and purpose, if to be with him, is to have the one who shelters us and covers us and provides for us and guides us in love, even though we are naked, then when we step outside of him, our whole lives will be about trying to find those exact things in other places. We'll have to depend on ourselves for our own forms of love, our own forms of life, our own freedom, our own shelter, our own peace, and our own provisions. To step outside of God then, is to now have to make our own coverings. And whenever we are faced with the reality that this isn't enough, that we aren't enough, all we can do is either bury our heads, hide, or blame someone else, blame something else for what we are feeling now. And that is the world in which we live today. We live in a world in which that which looked like life brought death. 
But that which would have felt like death would have brought life. We live in a world in which we are constantly looking for and also promised a better life. Constantly looking for and promised joy and peace. Constantly looking for and promised fulfillment. Constantly looking for and promised the good life where we are covered, where we are not naked and exposed. And these come in different forms. We are constantly told, if you will just do this, things will be better. Sometimes our search and the promises take us down a religious road where we are promised and seek to cover ourselves with our religious works. Thus, we try to cover ourselves by being more disciplined, by being better than others, fasting more, praying more, working harder, reading more, going above and beyond God's word. While other times, our search and the promises take us down an anti-religious road where we are promised and seek to cover ourselves through completely giving in to our desires, that you will find fulfillment. You will be happy if you just don't deny your wants. Never starve yourselves of your desires. But this doesn't work. It never has, and it won't. These roads don't satisfy, which is for why, for many of us, when we've walked down these roads, we find ourselves now just burying ourselves and hiding from the world. It's why we keep searching, why we keep looking, keep longing for something more, because we have stepped outside of God. And he is the only one who can truly love us the way that we need, truly care for us the way that we need, truly give us the grace and provision that we need. And are now, we are living in the realm of death, in God-forsakenness, where it's all on us, and we have to cover ourselves. And perhaps that's exactly how you feel right now. Perhaps right now, you feel like you've been just living your life constantly trying to cover yourself, trying to hide from the very idea of God, or trying to shift the guilt away from yourself. You're trying to find some kind of shelter, something to bear the weight of your sin, but no matter how hard you look, you can't find it. Your coverings and your blaming, they aren't working. That, in effect, is actually all of us. We might not feel it right now, but that is actually what it means to live outside of God. But there is hope. Because the story of our world does not end here. Yes, this text describes so much of why we experience the world that we do today. But it does not define the way that the world was meant to be. Nor does it define the way that God committed for the world to be. Because the world was meant to have us be able to trust God. It was meant to actually have us know his loving care. It was meant to have us eat from the tree of life and not of death. And because of that, because God was so committed to that and so committed to us, to you, because he loves us so much, even though we stepped outside of him into God-forsakenness by eating from our tree so that he would cry out, where are you? God ultimately responded to this by stepping into our God-forsakenness, taking our nakedness on himself and being nailed to a tree where he would cry out for us, my God, my God, where are you? Jesus willingly entered into our God-forsakenness, willingly took on the guilt, the shame, the pain, the suffering, the death, so that he could burst out the other side and offer us life. And one of the tellings of that story in the Gospel of John, John explains to us 
that Mary went to look for Jesus' body, went to his tomb, and she went there on the first day. And John keeps on telling us it was the first day. It was the first day. It was the first day. And when she arrives, she sees actually the tomb has been opened and Jesus' body is not there, but there is a man there. And it is Jesus, but she does not know that yet. She instead mistakes him for something. And do you remember what, he, what she mistakes him as? The gardener. Why the gardener? And why on the first day? Because John is telling us that it is beginning again, that there is a new creation. There is a new first day. There is a new Adam. There is a new gardener. And he can give you life because he entered into death for you. So if you are looking for covering, if you are looking for shelter, if you are looking for hope, there is one who has entered into hopelessness for us, who has cried out, God, where are you for us? So that he could take us along back to the garden, back to the shelter, 